you you can't be concerned about losing a job. That that can't be your driver. Um, it has to be. Uh, you have to be willing to lose that job in order to be able to make whatever decisions, the hard decisions that you have to make. Hello, and welcome to Ingenious You, the podcast where we talk about higher education, innovative practice, and leading edge thinking. Your host is Dr. Melissa Morris Olson. Higher education is undergoing a transformation which we have not seen in our lifetime. Prior to the pandemic, higher education was already experiencing disruption, which has only accelerated in this current moment. Nearly all colleges and universities are scrambling to redefine their futures, and for many, their very survival is now in question. In each episode of Ingenious You, we will talk with leading-edge thinkers whose expertise and experience are at the forefront of this transformation. Our guests will include college and university leaders, faculty, innovators, and other professionals who are experimenting with new approaches and ways of thinking about higher education. Be sure to hit subscribe to Ingenious You wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out on a single episode. And if you like what you hear, you can rate and review this podcast and share this with your friends and colleagues so they can join the conversation too. Ingenious You is a production of Chelip, the Center for Higher Education, Leadership, and Innovative Practice at Baypath University. To learn more about Chelip, visit our website at baypath.edu forward slash Chelip. Everyone, and welcome to another episode of Ingenious You. I am so pleased to have as my guest today, Dr. Valerie Roberson, who currently serves as president of Roxbury Community College. Let me give you just a little snippet of her background, and then I'm going to leave it to her to fill in some of the blanks as we have a what I know is going to be an inspiring conversation today. Valerie Roberson has been a community college administrator for over 30 years. She has served as president, vice president of academic affairs and of institutional advancement, dean and director of various programs, faculty member, researcher, and student advisor. Currently, Dr. Roberson is president of Roxbury Community College in the Boston area, where she has led the transformation of that institution on every level, resulting in significant cost-saving outcomes and increased rates of student retention, transfer, and graduation. In recognition of this work, she and her institution have been recognized by the Governor's Leading by Example Award and by the Better Cities Leventhal Award. Prior to her current role, she has held senior leadership roles at community colleges in the greater Chicago area. We were just um, conversing about our common backgrounds, both coming from Chicago to the East. Um, and in her roles there, she has had a similar impact on student engagement and achievement. Now I could go on and on. She's got a very impressive background, but I'm gonna post um, her bio on the, um, on the show notes so that you all can, uh, can read more details about her impressive background. But for now, Valerie, I wanna thank you for being with me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Now, I start out uh, my interviews typically 
uh, asking about uh, career journeys. And you certainly have an inspiring career path. So can you talk a little bit about where your journey began and specifically, how did you land in higher education? Mm. So that's a, such an interesting question. And I mean, it, it's easier asked in retrospect than it probably was um, in a plan that I had for my life. Um, I was a psychology major as an undergraduate and um, I really chose that profession because I wanted to help people. But the thing that was um, a little unsettling for me is that as a psychologist, I would be engaged in helping one person at a time. And that just didn't seem to be enough for me. And I didn't, you know, make a direct decision to go into education, but I was certainly influenced by um, my own experience in higher ed. And uh, while I was a good student, I really was in jeopardy of not graduating because I didn't know the process. Mm. No one really tells you, you know, how to select courses that are going to work for, uh, for your major. And they, they give you a lot of freedom um, as a student to make really um, mistakes oftentimes. Mm. And so I, I started having an issue because I had a, a grade appeal where I had, was not satisfied with the grade that I had received and um, was introduced to the campus embassy. Mm. And um, that individual really helped me to navigate the whole process of um, eventually um, getting that grade removed from my academic record and um, really enabling me to finish on time, which was a real priority for, for me and my family. And um, it, it helped me to understand how much of an impact an individual has on a large group of people. And, um, and so that, that was just something early on that happened that really um, drew my attention to the fact that, you know, again, smart students don't finish school all the time because they're not getting the support that they need. And um, I actually um, ended up deciding to be a, a, an academic counselor and was engaged in my um, uh, master's degree and um, had an, once I finished that program, I was looking for a job and stumbled into what was a community college, but I didn't have a frame of reference of even understanding what a community college was. Mm. And, um, but I, I really just was very fortunate to um, have one of my first jobs there. And um, I was on the side of the college that dealt with um, employee training and development. And I just loved it from the beginning. And that, that refrain of being able to help a large group of people have an impact you know, on their lives, because when you think about it, what problem is more um, essential to solving as, as your work? And so I just saw that as an opportunity to help a large group of people to really make a big difference in their life. Hmm. Well, and you certainly have in terms of the work that you've done. It's, it's interesting hearing, um, hearing the, about the influences um, on your, on your journey and then seeing how so many of the things that you have put in place across your career 
seem to have been informed <laughs> by, uh -huh. to one extent or another by by your own experience early on. Um, and I, yeah. you know, I don't know. Are are you a first gen? Were you a first gen? No, no oddly, I am not. And oh. I'm, you know, as a, I've, I've thought about this in that um, both my parents had been to college, uh -huh. and I'm the youngest of three girls. And my older sisters, one is five years, others ten years older than me. So they, they were all. I had a household of mentors, <laughs> and um, and in spite of that, um, I think I actually probably was overconfident. And so I remember skipping orientation, feeling like I don't need to, to hear that. Or um, I, I was really overconfident about my ability to navigate uh, okay. this, this situation. And, um, and as I said, when I, when I ended up having a problem, I was really overwhelmed by not understanding how can I solve this problem and um, meeting that counselor um, really just changed my whole thinking about the help that students need. And mm -hmm. since that point, I've often realized that something comes naturally to me or it doesn't come naturally to me. And the things that, that come naturally to me, I realize don't come naturally to other people. And mm -hmm. so I've tried to um, really help people to understand both the problems that I've overcome and even the things that are not problematic to me that I think that they might be able to um, to do differently if they you know had a different perspective. Mm. Well, that's that student advisor that still lives within you, right? Yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know that's another point you and I have in common. I was a I was an advisor early in my career as well, and now I I am a first gen mm -hmm. college student. And so when you were talking about um, not knowing or the the complexity of course registration in my case I didn't have a family context I can remember choosing a college and not having a clue what I was doing um, mm -hmm. and so I think that the role of the advisor um, in serving the needs of so many students whether they have a context of understanding or not is so incredibly important and valuable. And you've you've just carried that through all the way to your role as president, which is wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Now, well, I, I would also say that, you know, I was very fortunate that I've had so many roles. So you you talked when you kind of made the introduction about the, the diversity of the roles that I've had. Mm. And I really think that that has enabled me to be um, the president that I am, the the experience that I've gained in the thirty some odd years that I've been doing this, um, I've I've really kind of retained that experience in those jobs, and it helps me to understand how do we need to change, you know, academic advising, or how do we need to change student services because of, I've had so many experiences. It's really just been. Um, something that really enables me to do a, a good job. Let me switch gears here and ask you, like just about everybody else in higher ed, you pivoted, your institution pivoted in March in response to the pandemic. And what, what can you tell us about how that went on your campus and uh, most recently, how you're preparing and planning for the fall, which is almost here, right? Mm -hmm. Right, right, exactly. Well, you know, one of the first things that, that happened is that um, 
our administrative cabinet, the, the leadership of the college, um, had made a practice of having um, at least once a month meetings. And in February, um, as the situation with COVID started to happen, my one of my uh, vice presidents said to me, you know, I really think that we need to have a, a simulation, a tabletop of, of what would happen if this pandemic kind of got out of control. And I, I can even remember thinking at the time, well, that's not going to happen. But, but, you know, it's, it can't hurt to be prepared. And so we, we decided, and she designed this really um, great simulation that we used where um, we really kind of encountered all of the things that we're dealing with now. Um, I, I can't imagine what gave her the forethought to, to, you know, think that we needed to do that. But I mean, it was such a blessing that we had had that discussion as administrators. Mm, and that was about a month before mm. all of this happened. Divine guidance, um, perhaps. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and um, and so then from there, um, we, when the pandemic really hit Boston um, in a significant way, we were actually, it was the week right before spring break. And um, we made the decision, as did many of the other colleges in the area, to extend spring break by a second week. Mm. And within those two weeks, we had full cooperation from all of our faculty members and staff to engage in some pretty intensive training. And, and so um, we had um, some staff that were employed as um, instructional technology assistants. And so they were able to provide a large number of workshops. And then those people that had already converted their classes to online classes were acted as mentors to other people. And, and they were so generous with their time and support of each other that we were able to really convert all of our instruction within those two weeks and determine, um, gather all of the, the laptops that we had on campus and distribute those to students and to faculty members that didn't have them at home um, in a way that I, I think is really incredible in retrospect. Mm. Um, and so at, consequently, we, we were able to get um, computers to every student that made that request. Um, we were able to um, really continue instruction without um, too many problems. We didn't see a large number of students withdrawing or, um, you know, have too many complaints with students not um, being able to persist in their classes. And so I, I was really grateful for that. I think one of the things that helped us to be successful is that um, we also did uh, quite a few surveys um, of students, of faculty members and staff to get a sense of what they were thinking and what their concerns were and really use those, um, those survey data to be able to determine how we were gonna move forward as an institution and what services, what support was necessary mm. to folks. Mm. And, um, and so all of that, um, using that experience from the, the spring semester, we knew that we needed to have more time for faculty to engage in the development of their classes. And so all summer we've been offering um, classes for um, faculty to become more adept at using the technology and converting their classes to true online classes. Um, 
even those classes that we will try to offer face to face, the work has already been done um, to convert those classes. And so if we have to move, we, we're better prepared to be able to do that. But I, I've really just been um, heartened and, and really glad by the, the level of cooperation and, and working together that we've established for the college that's been able to help us to sustain um, the issues. Mm, boy, that's that's really quite extraordinary. Now, had you had you been doing much online before March? No, we were not. We probably had about 10% of our classes online. And you went from 10% to 100% in two weeks. Yes, we did. <laughs> well, and I'm, I'm also struck by um, the what you what you did in terms of surveying and, and staying close to students and faculty and then learning from that. And I'm imagining that has informed then the planning that you've done for the fall. Yes, oh, absolutely. Because, I mean, you know, so, so many of our students in the um, Roxbury Community College serves a primarily minority population. So 80% of our students are students of color. Mm. And 90% of them are um, eligible for financial aid. And so we know that we've got people that are dealing with a myriad of other issues besides, you know, even before COVID hit, they already had a lot of issues. Um, but we didn't necessarily understand how many challenges they may have had in health. So one of the things that our survey said was that, um, individuals were really concerned about their own health, that they had pre-existing issues or they were caring for others in their family. And so we knew that, you know, anything that we did to reopen the campus had to consider that one fact. So there, to your point, there was so much from that survey that helped us to learn more about our students, the challenges that they were facing and the concerns that were really going to affect them as they made decisions about how to continue their education. Mm. So now are you planning or when do you, when does your fall semester start? So we've, um, we've got about a month okay. um, before our classes start. And so are you planning to start in primarily online or are you, are you starting as with a mix? So we are starting with probably 90% online. Mm -hmm. We have some hybrid classes where individuals may come to um, campus a few times within the semester, and then a very small number of classes that must be taught face-to-face. -face. And those are primarily in our health services area um, where, um, so what some of the faculty have said, well, you know, to teach them the skills about dealing with COVID, if they're ever going to work within this field. And so right. that's embedded in the instruction um, when they come to campus. So I feel pretty comfortable that they are, they're going to be able to persist in those classes safely. Well, indeed, and, and what, an, what an interesting learning context. If you are preparing for a career in the health sciences or health, the health services, to be able to be learning uh, in this context while you're developing the skills is such a rich, a rich opportunity. I'm, yeah, absolutely. Even though none of us wish we were here. Exactly. Um, yeah. So let me let me ask you, because what you've just described is a wonderful example of of innovation on the spot. And you have been described to me by others as being a transformational 
leader. And when I have asked what that means, um, what I've been told is that you have led innovation and change in a number of, of different, um, different ways. And so I'm curious as an innovator, as an educational innovator, as you look at the, the things you have led, do you have one or two favorites where you can look at you look at them and you say, wow, that was really impactful? Mm. Wow. Um, well, one of the things I think that, um, especially in this context of working at, at Roxbury Community College um, and, and serving the population that we do, one of the favorite things that I've been able to do was um, to transform the, the physical campus. And um, we had the opportunity. Um, so when I when I first was hired at the college, they had already uh, received an allocation to do renovations, and had a plan um, of what rooms were going to be renovated, et cetera. And the architect said to me, "Well, you know, this is your only chance to make this kind of an impact. What what do you want to change?" Mm -hmm. And um, the one thing that we changed was um, the cafeteria. And the college really only had a very small food service operation. It was actually a converted classroom. So that gives you a sense of the size of what um, students were accustomed to. And um, we had the opportunity to create a student commons where there's food service, but there's a large area that seats about two to 300 people where everybody can come together in, in that space. And we made that space um, flexible enough that it has um, dividers in the space. So you can um, have smaller groups meet, groups of a hundred meet as opposed to the whole space being open. That flexibility um, was, was really important because we can use it for so many different functions. But having a space in the middle of campus where everybody can come together has been transformational. Mm. It gives students just a whole different feeling about being in school um, because they have some space where they can, they can just be between classes, they can meet informally with other students or with faculty members. Um, when the campus was open, I, I eat my lunch there every day. And mm. so many times students came, do you mind if I ask you a question? I know you're the president. And it's certainly that we, that's why I, I like to be here. And um, it just really changed the whole spirit of the campus, um, which was really, I, I didn't really have that forethought um, <laughs> when we did it, but to see how it, it actualize was just um, very important. And it was also um, a school where people didn't feel like um, administration cared about them or mm -hmm. that the community or the state cared about them. This was a, a manifestation that you deserve, just like any other campus in Boston, you deserve a space that is welcoming and modern and um, really just shows it's a, it's a visual demonstration of how much we care about your success and um, that we want you to be here at our campus. The second one um, that is a, a favorite of mine is this again uh, was work that started before I came to the campus, but the faculty in math, which is my teaching discipline. If I, when I was teaching, um, I taught developmental math. Mm. 
And, um, and so they, they have been doing some work about really determining what causes students to be successful in that sequence of courses. And, um, you know, in, in our case, we had three courses that um, were pre-college that a student might have to take to strengthen their skills in order to perform at the college level. And um, the faculty started to talk to me about about this issue and um, wanted to to do more. And so I really just gave them permission to have a pilot where um, we allowed them to experiment with time and, and space. So what we eventually ended up with is an understanding that when students are given twice the amount of time with the instructor, that they are able to persist at the college level course with the same level of success as they might have if they had taken those three so um, sequence, those three courses to the sequence to get to the college level. Mm. It is because students um, really have a capacity to learn that we as community colleges don't often recognize. And, and I mean, I'm saying this as someone that used to teach those developmental classes where I really thought I was doing a student a service by, you know, going in a linear fashion through these skills that they needed to, to learn. But what our faculty found out is that it's, it's not necessarily sequential. It's more just in time that they need those topics of it to be remediated. And so what we were able to do eventually is to eliminate those three, that sequence of courses. And we find that students are even more successful with just taking the college level class, but having more time with the instructor and more time on task. We're seeing that students are able to get through that first um, college level course. And then we are now seeing and we've been in this, um, this is our third year now, um, we're seeing higher enrollments in courses like calculus um, and even physics, where those prerequisite skills were necessary. Um, I think that this is just revolutionary and it's not really because of my work, it's the faculty that did the hard work and, and really tried a number of things before they found what was going to be successful for students. Um, and, and I just think that that is really the thing that community colleges can do best. The best of us are able to take chances to experiment and to, to determine what's going to be the most successful for the students that we serve. Mm. Boy, those are both uh, such impactful examples. And I'm struck with the, uh, the second example uh, by the fact that you have in, in what you've done, you've also um, reduced the cost for students yes. and shortened the time overall, right? Mm -hmm. to, to getting through and, and being able to get their associate's degree and, and move on, but also um, upped the ante in terms of their achievement. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's the other one that I, I like to also uh, talk about is that it increased their confidence. Uh. Okay. Um, and especially for, for one that taught that class, I mm -hmm. think I spent half of my time in the classroom 
helping people to feel like they could be successful. You know, and especially in, in math, there's such a stigma and people just, oh, I'm not good at math. Mm. <laughs> I yeah. have to use all my skills that I learned as in psychology to try to help them to overcome it. And, I, and you know, one thing I tell students is you're using math every day. You can't tell me that you, you can't do this problem. We mm. just have to translate this problem into the same thinking that went into you making change or completing a recipe or, you know, building your deck. You've, you've got math skills. These are difficult days for higher education. Even before the pandemic, higher education was in a freefall. Colleges are closing or merging at an ever-increasing rate. Leaders are facing challenges from every direction. No wonder so many experts are calling for a new kind of leadership. The Bay Path University Doctorate in Higher Education Leadership and Organizational Studies, affectionately known as HELOS, was created for just this time and purpose. We asked seasoned leaders for their input, and then we designed the courses in response. The HELOS program prepares students to become highly effective, self-aware, adaptive leaders who know exactly how to leverage their institution's strengths and potential to create lasting change and enduring success. If you've completed graduate level coursework in higher education, you may be able to complete the program in as little as three years. All coursework is online. Students receive an abundance of personalized support, both from their peers and from our expert faculty. We are now accepting applications for our October start. If you want to become a catalyst for change in higher education and have an impact, take the next step. Visit our website at baypath.edu edd. That's baypath.edu edd. you are keenly aware of um, the, the fact that the college presidency, uh, the tenure, the average tenure in our country um, has gotten shorter and shorter. This is true for the academic chief academic officer position as well. And some have, have speculated that the college presidency is an almost impossible job today. Um, and that was prior to the pandemic and all of the disruption and the uncertainty that has come along with the pandemic. Now your tenure at Roxbury exceeds the national average for the college presidency. So I'm wondering if you have any insights or guidance for other leaders, um, particularly new presidents who might be assuming their first presidency in the midst of this pandemic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is, that's an interesting question because you know, you always stay longer than you anticipate staying. <laughs> I, I wouldn't have thought that I would have been here seven years now. Mm -hmm. um, but I think one of the things that, that's helped me is that at some point, and this is my second presidency, so that after the first one, um, I, was, um, I wasn't sure that I would want to be president again. And um, I, I actually took a job as a vice president after having been president. And people thought, why would you do that? Mm. Well, it, for me, um, the thing that sustains me is that 
I'm not necessarily that keen about being president. Being president in and of itself has really no meaning to me. The thing I really aspire to do is, just as I said in the beginning of my career, I just really want to be able to help people. And I want to be effective in that work. And um, I found that actually with each promotion, there would come a point where I'd say, well, you know what, I could do that job. And, um, and so I feel very blessed to be able to do the work and I feel like I'm really good at it. It's that confidence that sustains me and really allows me to operate in a space where I don't have to be concerned about my career aspirations. I can really just focus on getting the work done. And that's really the thing that, that makes a difference to me. Um, I think that I've, I've watched people sometimes that say, I want to be president. And they can get so wound up in, in being president that they don't feel comfortable making the hard decisions that we all have to make. You have to be willing to almost live and die by the decisions that you make. And especially as you talk about COVID, you, you know that literally people's, their life and their health is in your hands. And so you can't be so concerned about self um, that you, you can't make a good decision for other people. So um, I'm not really sure how to translate that into advice for others that might um, persist. But I will tell you that being president is a very selfless job. You, you cannot really think about yourself um, as much as you have to have an empathy and a concern for others. Um, and that's, that's, that's the thing that as long as I'm able to do that work and I'm effective in it, um, I, I want to continue. But the moment that I'm not able to make a contribution or I, I don't have the skills, I want to step away because it's, it's too important <laughs> of a job um, to not be able to do your best work. You know, as I listen to you, I'm struck by um, how uh, how balanced you are, and <laughs> whether you feel that way or not. I mean, uh -huh. it, it's a very balanced perspective, and it's it's obviously you've come to the point where you realize it's not about you. Um, uh -huh. But is that is that something you had with you from the beginning, or did it evolve over time? It, it definitely did evolve, um, though I. I may have had a spark of that in, mm. in the beginning. And I, um, yeah, I've always felt uh, pretty strongly that I, I need to be good at the work. I, I don't want to do a job if I'm not good or if I don't feel good about the work that I'm doing. And I, I'll tell you one um, other job that I had early in my career that influenced me. I started, I was a business um I had a business minor in um, my undergraduate degree. And so coming out with a degree in psychology, I had to rely on that. And I took a job as a loan officer. And um, I would think I was in the position all of three months. But one of the things that got me into trouble with my boss was that I, I wanted to make sure that people understood the commitment that they were making when they signed loan papers. <laughs> And uh, my boss said, you, you don't have to explain it to that degree. And I said, no, I can't live with myself if I don't explain it 
somebody's taking out that kind of money, I want them to understand. And I want to do everything I can to make sure that they understand it. And so that, I mean, to your point, that's a part of my personality. I feel really um, strongly that I've got to be doing work that is, um, is really going to be helpful to a person. And, um, and, and that's, you know, my own personal judgment of what that, what that looks like. But um, I think that it's important that we as individuals find work that is meaningful rather than aspire to a position. You've mm -hmm. got to make sure that you feel good and, and principled about that work. And if you do, it's not really work. It's really, it's a joy to be able to, um, you know, share that gift that you have with other people. Mm -hmm. So, I, I mean, I think that's just the way that I've always looked at it, but it certainly has evolved in terms of, you know, kind of getting where I am now. And I will tell you that one of the things that got me there was that my first presidency, I lost the job um, and I'd never been, you know, fired or dismissed from a position before. And um, it, it, it took me in a, a, a long time to kind of process that. But where I eventually got was that you, you can't be concerned about losing a job. That, that can't be your driver. Um, it has to be, uh, you have to be willing to lose that job in order to be able to make whatever decisions, the hard decisions that you have to make. As a woman of color who serves in a significant higher ed leadership role, it, it also strikes me that you bring a uniquely uh, valuable perspective to the role, not only to what's happening right now, but, but to the act of leading. And I'm, I'm curious, from your vantage point, as you look around and you look back over the course of your life, um, if you have an opinion about what you think college leaders most need to be paying attention to right now, whether it's on their campus, whether it's in terms of their own approach to leadership, um, and particularly in response to the racial unrest and systemic un injustice that we're seeing playing out in our country right now. Yeah, that, you know, um, the, the interesting thing about being um, whoever you are in, in your package, you don't necessarily think about the effect of it um, because you just live it every day. Mm. But, but being um, a female, um, you know, actually, and I'll, I'll go back to the, the situation with my, the, the reason that I lost my first presidency was partly because I had a male boss. He asked me to do some things that I didn't think were principled, you know, within my principle. And um, I just didn't feel ethically that that was what I could do. And, um, and so that's how I ended up eventually um, kind of losing that position. And um, it hadn't occurred to me um, too much uh, before that point about the differences that in treatment that I might receive as a female employee versus a male. And um, I think it was the very act of defiance as a woman that um, this individual really could not really deal with. Um, and I don't know that kind of going into it, I would have done anything differently, 
um, or that there's anything that could be done in, in retrospect because, you know, people make different decisions because of your gender or because of your race. It's, it's something that you're conscious of. And, and I think that that's the advice that I would, um, you know, give to others, especially in this time of unrest, is that um, you really do have to engage in some self-reflection um, and understanding. Um, and I think that sometimes it helps you to feel better about things that have happened to you um, that explain some some behaviors that you knew in your heart weren't right, but you couldn't quite figure out, you know, why it was happening. And I think that that, that can apply on a larger basis. So even like going back to that discussion about developmental education, it's something about developmental ed that's always, always bothered me, even as a practitioner, that um, you have these ideas about the way that other people learn. And, you know, as an instructor, you're always um, having to make those decisions. But if we can really be open enough to understand other people's experiences, it, it just enriches your ability to do your job. Mm. Once you, you start to kind of step outside of first understanding yourself, which I think is really important, but secondly, then trying to understand other people's stories that are not your own, I think is the key to us as a, as a country or as um, you know, individual colleges on, in understanding what we need to do to make our programs more inclusive or, um, you know, where we're not developing policies that are going to, um, you know, hurt others. It, it's, it's certainly hard to describe, but I think it's possible by developing that sense of empathy of other people and, and, and understanding their stories and listening, you know, to what people are saying and and doing the hard work to think about it, I think is what's necessary to get us, you know, beyond this. Mm. Where, you know, I just have to ask, where where does your inspiration come from? Because you are a you are a, a remarkably positive and hopeful voice, which is so needed today. You know, mm -hmm. I you you read everything I read, I'm sure, in terms of <laughs> you know the the um you know, the pundits who are so pessimistic about the mm -hmm. future. And um, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just finding myself very inspired listening to you. Um, so it's, I'm, I'm curious where your inspiration comes from. Well, first, it, first it's my personal faith. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so I'm a, a Christian and, and really try to um, think about that work or that mission of helping other people in, in my work. And so that's, that's the one piece. Um, the second piece of it though, is um, really understanding that as a leader, you have to be positive. Everybody is, they gain their spirit uh, from you. And I, I realized that we were having a, a catastrophe at, at the college, um, a pipe burst and the water's pouring in through the whole campus. And it's, and, you know, I was, uh, it, it happened at nine o'clock. So there are various employees that were around and my eyes welled up. I was just so, um, 
despondent about what was occurring. Um, and um, I noticed that one of the employees came to me and she wanted to try to comfort me. And I said, oh my goodness, this is not, this is not what um, I can afford to do. I can't afford to get caught in my own emotion about it. I've got to be there to help other people. And I, so I feel like it's part of my job to be positive mm. and to make sure that people understand that no matter what happens, there's a way that we can, we can work through this. And I, I've been fortunate enough in, in my own experience to see that um, come to fruition where if you can um, not center so much on what's happening, but think about what's going to happen in the future and how you can even use a negative situation to advance um, um, your work and, and being open to that possibility, I think is just, um, you know, what's worked for me in my life. And um, so I, I really try to keep my faith strong so that I can, I can help other people. And I, and I know that if I'm not able to do that, I, I'm, you know, you can bring everybody down if you're not. Um, you know, feeling positive about the possibilities. And so many people are looking to you that as a president, you have to understand that they are, they are looking to you and they're going to take their cues from you. Mm, indeed. Boy, so much good leadership wisdom there in, uh, in your, your experience and your insights. Now there, there's a lot that's been written, uh, as you know, about the need to reimagine the higher education system in the US and, and many have written about the, the role of the community college um, being increasingly important as we look to the future. So I'm curious if you have a vision for what you think higher ed should look like going forward and, and thoughts about how the community college fits into that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that the one thing I'm, really hopeful is that in COVID, we've understood that we had to really reach out to individuals on an individual basis, that you didn't have the luxury of them coming into your office or, um, you know, being able to address a whole classroom of students, that you've had to find ways to provide some one-on-one -on -one support to students and really customize um, you know, the advice or um, the solution that you offer to that individual and, and understand, you know, what's going on with their life that also needs to be considered. The thing that, that strikes me about community colleges is that there's almost an assumption that students come on campuses and because we're open door, open admission, oftentimes we, we, put all this out that students have all these choices. And what strikes me is that they really don't understand the, the, the context well enough to be able to make good decisions. So it's really only by those individual conversations that you can determine what's gonna be the best pathway for students. So I hope in, in some ways that we will understand um, how to customize um, our advice to students and our direction um, to make it more based on individuals, even if it is 
like a survey where you've, you've collected that information, but you're still basing it on what these individual needs are. Um, I also think that we, we've all in higher ed been place bound. We now have to consider what offering um, instruction that is not place bound, what does that look like? And what opportunities does that give us? Uh, everything from being able to hire instructors um, where you, you have a, a discipline, you've had a hard time recruiting you know, the right instructor to teach. Well, now you can recruit from literally all over the world and be able to incorporate um, you know, that expertise into your situation. So I just think that it opens up so many possibilities of the way that we do business um, to be able to provide the flexibility that, um, you know, in the past, students in community colleges were the ones that are trying to balance their, their lives, their, um, their living conditions, their working conditions, their children, all of those things. I think that that's going to be the thing that enables us to do that work more effectively because we are accustomed to considering all these independent needs that students have that they bring onto the campus. I think that that's going to be um, important for other institutions of higher education in order for them to sustain themselves. They're going to have to be able to find ways that um, address a larger group of people that are going to have that same problem. Because um, if schools aren't able to open, um, a lot more students are going to have that issue of dealing with, you know, how do I balance my work, my school, my job at, a, at the same time? So I think that the solutions as we go forward really enable us to serve those students and help them to see how it's possible to balance all those things at the same time. Um, I think we're uniquely poised as community colleges to be able to solve that problem and really um, take it much further than we have um, in the past. Mm. So let me, let me, I'm going to ask you in my final question here to drill a little bit deeper. Um, and as you may know, we have a signature question that we ask of every, every guest and it's really related to the question that I just asked you. Um, and so as you think about your vision for the future of higher ed and you think about what we need to be doing right now in this moment and paying attention to to get to that vision that future what what do you see what what needs to be on our radar your radar right now to ensure a positive transition beyond the pandemic Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that a lot of the work with, with Black Lives Matters and um, the social justice issues that are um, coming to the forefront that in this time um, really need to be considered as we go forward. Um, and I think that there are many ways in which we can um, utilize that to improve ourselves as, as community colleges and institutions of higher education. And um, even as you consider, you know, the, the pathway of students that have been um, marginalized um, 
in some cases, their entire lives. Um, and you consider how that affects them as students and what do we need to do differently in order to compensate sometimes um, for a, an experience that hasn't been as strong? What do we need to do to make sure that all students have access to um, higher education because we know of the transformational power of, of education and to deny individuals um, access to that is, is almost criminal to me. So I think that that's one of the largest problems that we as professionals in higher education need to think about. What needs to change so that everyone has an equal opportunity and um, to be successful in, in their in their careers or in their um, their education. I, to me, that's the, the biggest challenge that we have before us. Mm. I, I couldn't agree more. So a very fitting, fitting note and comment to end on. Valerie, I am so grateful for your time and for your insights. You are uh, indeed an inspiring and a positive leader and uh, I hope that perhaps you'll agree to come back so we can finish uh, finish and go a little bit deeper on some of these other conversations at some point in the future. Yeah, I would love to. I, I can't thank you enough for um, the opportunity to share my thoughts. I really enjoyed, um, you know, just to kind of think sometimes about what you've accomplished and um, what lies ahead. So I appreciate the opportunity. Olson, and you've been listening to Ingenious You. My thanks to our production assistants, Madeline Olson and Marcy Moore. Join me next week for another Ingenious You conversation with widely read author and consultant, Dr. William Massey. As Emeritus Professor and former officer of Stanford University, Dr. Massey has been active as a teacher, researcher, and university administrator for more than 40 years. After gaining tenure in Stanford's Graduate School of Business, he served as Vice Provost for Research, Acting Provost, and Vice President for Business and Finance, during which time he developed and pioneered financial planning and management tools that have become standard in the field. And then as Professor of Higher Education at Stanford, he worked on resource allocation, cost containment, and academic quality assurance and improvement. Frankly, I cannot think of anyone better to talk to these days about something that is on the mind of just about every higher ed leader I know, and that is how to reduce the cost and increase the revenue for our academic program portfolios. According to Massey, this current crisis calls for actions on a scale that will stretch most of our institutions beyond anything they have previously experienced. If your institution is looking for how to get started with this highly important work, don't miss my conversation with Dr. Massey. He shares key ideas and tools that any institution can use starting now to strengthen its financial bottom line. That's all for now. Thank you for listening. Be well and stay strong.